Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host loves his laser engraver. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host loves his pencil. Professional growth involves ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education literature while drinking beer. Today we are drinking Iron Joe, an oak-aged Scottish coffee ale from Rar and Sons Brewery out of Fort Worth, Texas. I am so pleased that we could get our hands on some canned beer for this particular episode. I think we are two for two this season. Uh, yeah. Yay environment. It smells like an oak aged. It also smells like coffee. So this month we're kind of back to basics. Uh, Woodruff and I are going to be talking about a paper that was one of the top read articles in the Journal of Teaching and Teacher Education for 2017. So I'm excited to go ahead and join a discussion that is already fairly vibrant out there. And so we read The Myths of the Digital Native and the Multitasker. And that's by Kirshner and Debuckier. Uh, so our apologies, we do our very best. We will correct ourselves if the authors let us know how to say it correctly. Please do. Um, but the upshot is they did a literature review that sort of unpacks this myth, this conception of our young students being digital natives, which is distinct and different from any previous generation. Yeah, this was a um, an article that felt like home to me. Uh, I guess uh, this, these kinds of perspectives were a part of my teacher education program. And so to have a nice, thorough uh, update of the research base on this particular topic felt good to me. I liked it. Uh, so the idea of a digital native is to say that there exists some group of people who, due to their very nature, so something that is not a learned uh, experience, but because they are raised in a world with digital omnipresence, that they are inherently uh, more adept with digital tools, responsible usage, uh, implementation, problem solving. They are just by their nature better at digital than a generation or than people who were not raised in such a setting. This, uh, this is kind of a trope. This is a, a narrative that is appealing. We like the idea of that, you know, superstar kid who can, like, be the hacker or figures out how to save the, uh, the disaster computer system in the dinosaur island. And, you know, we like that narrative that there's some super kid that can figure it out faster than we can because they know what they're doing. So the idea that this myth exists really isn't a mystery because it's appealing. Since the narrative is part of our sort of a cultural experience, I just played a video game where one of the characters was a 14-year-old international super hacker. Um, yeah, that's super common. Just here, I am, I'm 12, but clickety clack, clickety clack, I'm in. Right, yeah. So, like, we like that narrative. It's a trope. We, it's, in, it's in our culture. But let's, let's talk about the myth. Let's talk about why that narrative is not true. So yeah, the, the answer is we went looking for it and didn't find it. That's, right. that's really the answer, right. is this is a lit review, and so they were compiling results from a bunch of different studies, and they they compared them. They said, here are some people who are from this basket that we are calling digital natives, so let's give them some opportunities to engage with digital spaces and see how well they do compared to people who aren't from those baskets. In the EU, there was a, a widespread study where they essentially assessed the technologically interfa technological interfacing skills of people over the age of 30 with people under the age of 30. Mm -hmm. The people over the age of 30 outperformed. 
And that group was not uh, considered to be in the digital native group. So there's one. Team old people. And then the following was another study that pitted middle school science teachers against their students. And in that case, the middle school science teachers, again, outperformed with technological interfacing. So really, I think the myth is born from... It's born out of we see people using these shallow, mass-produced content generators, just these factories pumping out low-grade junk, uh, and we see people consuming that a lot, and then fallaciously assume that because I see these people on devices a lot, they must be using them well, when what we're really saying is some people use them frequently. Exactly. Exactly. Digital tech competency was not correlated with age, but there were studies that correlated with education levels and wealth, of all things, Mm -hmm. Uh, though I didn't get too deep into that. The article calls us to rewrite this narrative from uh, considering age, discard, now start thinking about roles. Who are, how are these people acting in this particular context? And that will be a better predictor of whether or not they are likely to be um, adepts at using digital technology in effective ways. This has consequences. If we are teachers that subscribe to this myth that my students, they've grown up with technology, so they're going to be really good at it. If we operate under that assumption, what we're doing is we're assuming students have skills that they do not have. And that has significant negative consequences. Now, I have a, a, from my experience, I have a story of that. It's not about technology, but it is about me assuming that my students have skills that they don't have. When I first started teaching uh, biochemistry, uh, we we had done all these basics of chemistry lessons, and then it was time to get into the, you know, our biological molecules. And here we go. Here are lipids. And I took for granted that my students could read molecular diagrams. And I did not teach them how. And so we went through these these units where we talk about lipids and, and nucleic acids and proteins. And they never stopped to ask me what they were looking at. They never asked to clarify it. And I just assumed that they were getting it. So when it came to assessment time, I realized that none of them knew how to read those molecules. And they had just been blundering through it the whole time. When you make an assumption about what your students know, you, you don't end up teaching them where they're at, and you'll lose efficacy. This applies to technological interfacing as well. Mm-hmm. But the example that resonated with me the most was literacy. So we see them using digital technology a lot. So then we ask them to go use it to solve a particular problem. But because they are only most familiar with these shallow, mass-produced, clickbait junk, that they're solving those problems poorly if we don't diagnose that they have this misunderstanding or this gap in skills, then we're going to spend a lot of time solving a problem that they don't have. We, we think that they have these embedded beliefs or we think that they have this misunderstanding of content when they're really just using a tool poorly. And the longer we allow them to keep using that tool poorly and uh, fail to address it, the more deeply embedded those misconceptions are going to be. They keep ask, get asking to research online, but if they never get any instruction on what that looks like and they keep to reinforcing that behavior of Yahoo Answers is good enough, Yahoo Answers is good enough, Yahoo Answers is good enough, it's going to become ever more difficult to break that behavior pattern because we do the things we repeat, right? We do the things we keep doing. 
And this concern was played out in a Finnish study where digital natives are now old enough to be teachers and they actually tracked those teachers. And they found that the digital tech competency of those new teachers was lower than anticipated and their practice did not, as you said, incorporate an emphasis on students creating and sharing products digitally. It was simply using it as a convenient encyclopedia. I found it super interesting that this article, and it sounds like just a general mechanism for defining the break, is 1984. I thought that was super interesting <laughs> and funny because of the popular, uh, the famous canonical novel of 1984 exists. So I thought it was super funny that that is the chosen year that separates digital natives and not. I yeah, the uh, I thought it was interesting that that date is decided upon as the, uh, the widespread distribution of the 8-bit video game systems. That's oh, why yeah. 1984 Nintendo. You define the the native digital. Age. I mean, and they did popularize video games in a way that was like was not happening. Not just that it didn't happen before that, but that it had been attempted and failed, and like they were going to discard the idea in its entirety. They, the general, the general yeah. zeitgeist. Uh, so that's that's interesting. Uh, but. Uh, Calling those born after 1984 digital natives is a fallacy because yeah. they're not. So 1984 is like a nice representation of like this Orwellian date is a divider for a thing that is bad. So I just I thought that was funny. Uh, yeah. I really don't like that they've got dig digital immigrants being the other group. Just seems like we're setting people up to uh, add some negative connotation to immigrant for no reason at all. Well, native and immigrant are words that... They are opposing specific, words, yeah. but uh, there's a value judgment. Well, you, laggard and early adopter, it's the same problem. Yeah, because they are both from the perspective of one is better than the other, yeah. as opposed to just being different. So I just, I don't like that. So I'm avoiding using the term that's actually the term in the paper, because I think that that's problematic. Language is thought... So if we talk about natives as opposed to immigrants, and the immigrant is less than native, right. it's sort of the same implication as the, in the adoption curve. If we have the innovators, and then the early adopters, and then the laggards, oh man, if only they could be early, early adopters and they'd be better people, right. uh, all come from the perspective of people with an agenda and with a particular bias. And so being cognizant of allowing those words to be the things that shape our perspective, we are inherently applying value judgments that might not be appropriate. Yeah, it harkens to the uh, the critical social perspectives of the last episode and also the um, the language imperialistic episodes of the uh, ELL mm -hmm. episode from however many episodes ago that was. So, you know, language matters and it, it has implicit shapings of these discussions. So the second half of this paper was the paper that I got more excited about. Yeah, me honestly. too. Uh, multitasking is not a thing. Period. <laughs> multitasking is not a thing. Right. What we are calling multitasking is worse. Is is worse than monotasking. Yeah. The first half was about the illusion of digital natives, and the second half is about the illusion of multitasking. As the word implies, you can do multiple things at the same time, but it turns out uh, that is an illusion. It's not real. Our brains don't do that. And in fact, unless your computer has two processors, it doesn't do that either. Instead, the illusion of multitasking is caused by a phenomenon that was named here, and I had never heard this phrase before, threaded cognition. Yes. So threaded cognition is essentially borrowing some computer science terms to describe 
rapid task switching between different things because they don't happen simultaneously, but the switching happens so fast that we can't really tell the difference from the outside. It looks like they're happening at the same time, but they're really just happening sequentially, bouncing back and forth between these couple of different ideas. But that's a problem. When multiple threads vie for resources, the least recent thread is prioritized. So they rotate through the queue. They rotate through the queue very, very rapidly, which means they are switching constantly. And switching has a cost. It's called the psychological refractory period, and basically it's the time to shift gears, right? So I'm thinking about item A. I want to switch. That takes some time. I've got to swap out the equivalent of my brain's RAM to reload in the things that matter for this other thing and get refocused on what that new thing is before I can get started again. And that, that segment of time is lost. That segment of time is just gone to maintenance. And yeah. so it takes a greater amount of time to do multiple things together than it would have to do those things in isolated sequences. In a lot of circumstances, this doesn't really matter. I can process my next step and chew my gum and be back to my step before I got through any of that. So when we are doing multiple things, the switching is irrelevant because the tasks themselves aren't slowed down at all. Sometimes that cost doesn't matter. Your conversation isn't appreciably hindered if you're walking down the street with a friend while you have that conversation. However, there are circumstances where it does matter. If you are attempting to engage in an activity that requires uh, intense, sustained periods of processing, then these switching costs can build. Especially if you're engaging in things like sense-making. So if I'm trying to work my way through a problem in order to fit all of my observations into a schema that may be under remodeling, not only is that something that takes considerable effort and patience, but it's also something with an unclear endpoint. And so the problem comes out that those refractory periods increase the amount of time that I have to invest in a particular set of activities in order to complete all of those activities at a mastery level compared to if I was doing each of those activities in isolation. And that number is, I was kind of surprised, it's pretty big. 1.66 times as much time has to be invested. So if I was gonna spend an hour to do these two things to a mastery level, I need to spend an hour and 40 minutes doing those things if I'm going to interleave them in a way that might appear to be multitasking. And this doesn't reduce with expertise. Not only does it affect a learner struggling with whatever reading assignment they have or whatever sense-making they're trying to engage in, it also affects uh, experts as uh, they measure that experts that are task switching make more medical errors uh, than medical experts Experts that are focused with without having to task switch. And so the paper describes for learners what is often the case is that they don't spend meaningfully more time on tasks when they are doing a lot of task switching compared to when they are monotasking. So what you end up having happen is actually an incomplete amount of work on something and so a failure to reach mastery despite the fact that they could have had they been more focused. And so that's actually where the greatest cost of multitasking, by my estimation, comes out. is not that it takes longer, but that we fail to invest that additional time. And as a result, we fail to achieve mastery on things that we could have or even would have wished to have reached had we been more aware of the costs. And this is shown in studies. Students who multitasked while studying 
as you said, they don't study longer, and then this has consequences to their performance in courses, their subsequent GPAs. And in another study, heavy multitaskers, self-assigned or self-identified heavy multitaskers were slower when they were processing multiple stimuli, they made more recollection errors, and they failed to restrain their focus I'm sorry, yeah, they failed to restrain their focus to only relevant stimuli. So when they were being tested on a multitasking activity, those that were regular multitaskers actually did worse. Yeah, those who self-identified as regular multitaskers did worse. And that's actually the thing that is the most sad to me of this entire uh, piece of literature is that people who become accustomed to multitasking, we get better at the things that we do, ladies and gentlemen. That's just a part of who we are as humans. Yeah. So if we do a lot of what we perceive to be multitasking, it's actually just regular task switching. Yep. We get worse at monotasking. We get worse at filtering out irrelevant stimuli, which means we are more susceptible to future multitasking, whether or not we intend to be doing more future multitasking. So it's a self-propagating problem. If we don't practice sustained focus, we will find ourselves in a group of people who are worse at filtering out irrelevant stimuli and thus sustaining focus. So this is a teaching podcast, turns out. So the question is, what does this mean for teachers and teacher training? Digital natives don't really exist, and multitasking has consequences. Now what? There's an axe that I grind regularly. If your students are writing, don't talk. And if you're talking, don't let them write. Like There's a piece of it that is don't demand multitasking of your students because you are necessarily putting them in a place where they are set up to fail. But that's not revolutionary. Like, that's... That's a thing that takes practice. It takes professional discipline. It's something that I'm still getting better at, despite the fact that I've been practicing it for a decade, right? Like, don't demand of our students multitasking is the low-hanging fruit. But this article and this segment is really more about multitasking in the setting of a digital space. And digging your heels in and refusing to allow students to have access to or to be in proximity of people on digital devices, whether they're multitasking or not, that's pretty different among all of our colleagues. You take a hardline stance. I sure do. I take a less hardline stance, and not everyone even gets to choose their stance. That's also true. One of the recommendations that they made that resonated with me was that the importance of focus and the negative impacts of multitasking should be included in the curriculum. And this actually dovetails with something in our second segment, is that um, if study skills are prerequisite for learning things and we're not teaching them study skills, we're not teaching them things. So I spend some time at the beginning of my school year talking about this very psychological research, this very, uh, this topic. And so I let them in behind the curtain as to why I have a hardline policy and why long term it might be in their best interest when doing certain activities to do them without their phones present. I appreciated that because when I'm sacrificing that time at the beginning of the year, I am necessarily, and I'm, this is kind of an air quote statement, but I'm getting behind in standards. I'm able to cover less because I have less time because I'm using it for this. Uh, But I think this is an important thing for them their brain is what i'm there to help them develop and so the choices they make having been informed are something that they should be empowered with 
Well, I think we finally got, I didn't have this number before this segment. I think we have finally have a numerical value associated with the gains in momentum that get described often from teachers who make some of these kinds of choices. Basically, I have 0.66 amount of time to work on being able to monot monotask with my students because that is time that would be wasted if I don't do it and they multitask later. So can I help them monotask in 0.66 worth of time because that's how much longer they're gonna spend doing it if I don't do it? I think that we can. So the couple of weeks that get spent at the beginning of the year, that's going to get replaced and then some later on in the school year if we become adepts and if we uh, get that social buy-in, that trust that yes, we can do this with singular focus and by filtering out those extra details later on, you're not getting behind because you're recovering a considerable amount of time in the efficiency and how they can do things later on. Yeah. Another thing that the article said was that teachers should be responsible for deciding when tech implementation is a good idea or a bad idea. It, you are the teacher, you know what activities they are, learn what the technology can do. When they are researching something, give them access to good researching tools. When they are focusing on something, give them good access to focusing tools, mm -hmm. whatever those may be. So it's okay to decide to use research in your classroom if you know what your goals are and the and the technology supports them. Just this past week, I found myself in an interesting place. Um, my kids, we were working on food webs and my kids were all basically doing the same food web and I was like, I don't wanna see this food web again for the rest of my life. And so I decided that I was gonna assign them different biomes and then I was gonna make them research the actual organisms that live in those biomes and construct a nice, rich, robust food web uh, based on their research of these locales. And I went to a back room and I dusted off an old iPad card and I rolled it out and I plugged it in and I charged them all up and I gave them to my students and then I checked my email and saw that the Wi-Fi was gonna be down district-wide. So, uh, <laughs> but I knew that, and I was prepared with a plan B, but the point is that was a great time to give that to my students and let them use a device. Uh, there's another article that I share with my students every year. It's, um, called Brain Drain, The Mere Presence of One's Own Smartphone Reduces Available Cognitive Capacity by Adrian Ward, uh, Kristen Duke, and uh, A. Neasy, and Martin Boss. Uh, it was published in 2017. Um, this one basically is a little more complicated. It's not just about distractions and multitasking. It's about if you have developed an emotional relationship to a device, then part of your working memory is dedicated to unconsciously paying attention to that device. Yeah, monitoring it. Right? Yeah. yeah, and so you're you're actually, in the background, using part of your processing, you're switching between paying attention to something that isn't doing anything and whatever your task is. So it's an additional burden. So uh, students who remove themselves from their device or distance themselves from the device show an increase in test scores. Now, that effect is not present when they do not have an emotional attachment to their device. So the iPads that I'm wheeling in from the dusty closet, that cost isn't there because they don't have any emotional expectation for that iPad to call them. And the only reason I mention this is because I want to make a, a blanket statement, which of course means it's wrong, but uh, to districts that are going one-to-one, -one, 
there's some movement to say, we want these kids to put their stickers on it and to personalize it and put in their social media and all of these things and make that device their own. It's a district device, but we're going to lease it to them for the four years that they're with us. And, and that's a mistake. You do not want them to be emotionally attached to these devices. You want these devices to be their academic bastion, their focus, their tool for when it's appropriate to use it. And let them, let them get that emotional thing on their phone. Let them do all of that other stuff on their other personal devices. You do not want this device to have that cognitive cost. Well, that, that's a cost. What are the benefits of them being emotionally invested in a particular device, especially in an academic setting? The benefits are 1.66 times slower activity. Is that the only benefit? Like, uh, do we see any increase in creativity? Do we any, see any increase in proactive pursuit of unusual expressions of um, generative activity on based on content? Do they start their own biology blog? Do they start doing any sort of uh, um, what's it like illustrator activity? Well, as the first digital native part of this article would suggest, no. The idea that because they have a technology with them all the time, they're going to be better at using it was just... That's not, it's, not, it's not a they. It's not, it's not an age thing. But if I have a device in which I am emotionally invested, am I more likely to take greater risks and um, investigate more exotic implementations of that device compared to if I have no emotional investment in it? I don't know. I'm just all I'm doing is asking questions. I have no I have no research to support any of it. But uh, again, we just had an aside about Zhao's discussions of side effects. Yeah. Are there any benefits to having an emotional investment in a device? I know the study you're referencing, and I know that it does not say definitively there aren't. Right. It doesn't. I admit that. It might still be wrong to do one to one. Get me, hear me loud and clear. I, I did say it was a blanket statement, which means yeah. it's probably wrong. Yeah, yeah, you said that. But it's still my blatant statement. Yeah, they've got their personal devices. I and would, you yeah. got to take a stand in order to affect change. That's true. Empower each other. So our second segment is about socio-emotional outcomes and how do you teach self-regulation because that's something that we've mentioned even in recent episodes. Uh, Kansas has socio-emotional outcome uh, standards associated with those sorts of things. And so we took a look at initially this Edutopia article, How to Teach Self-Regulation, which is really about helping students uh, focus, control their emotions, and adjust to change. But the goal was to have a conversation about how do you teach study skills? How do you teach emotional intelligence? I'm a mentor of a first-year teacher right now. And um, when I'm considering, uh, you know, I'm debriefing with her at the end of her day about, you know, some of the issues that came up with her classroom. Well, it turns out some of the fundamentals mentioned in this article are exactly the fundamentals that she needs reminded of as she is going through her in-classroom problem-solving paradigm. Some of these fundamental things are, um, they may seem pedestrian, but they really are fundamental. Do not take behavior problems personally. If you do, and some teachers do, that's gonna really change your efficacy in the classroom. Try not to correct, try not to correct or humiliate students publicly when they are exhibiting behaviors uh, that are out of control for them. Figure out why the behavior is occurring so that we can address root causes that contribute to the behavior. Routines establish consistent behavior expectations so students can get into patterns that prevent themselves from getting to those out of out of control behaviors. All of that was in this article. Yeah. 
my struggle is if I take a look at clear expectations, it, my critique is not that these suggestions are pedestrian. My critique is that these suggestions are only useful if a teacher already knows the complexity and the implementation associated with them. So if I know what clear expectations looks like and have forgotten it, as you describe in your story, this is a great prompt to go back and reemphasize that. If I all if I don't already know what that looks like in a successful classroom setup, this article doesn't help me make that implementation. So if I'm a teacher who says, I am expecting daily work to be submitted for five points every day, and by God, these students in this remedial class don't turn it in. Standing up and being clear, you need these five points every day in order to pass my class, is not going to make a meaningful change for my students' behavior nor their experience in my class. So my concern is not that it is pedestrian. My concern is that it is not transformative. I think an implicit value in all of this was that students who stand the gain the most from explicit instruction towards socio-emotional... How about outcomes. behavior regulation? Well, it's not just behavior. So I, I can tell I can be as clear as I want all the live long day about the importance of points, but if I'm trying to sell points to students for whom the system has failed, I will never sell that. Like, that's never going to work. So instead, sometimes... Clear expectations means you need to be clear to yourself about the expectations that students have of you. I appreciate that you said that. And though that communication could have been stronger in this piece, I do think the very last sentence approaches what you're saying. We must meet these children where they are and teach them the skills they need to be successful in the classroom. And that may not be conforming to my daily point hand-in problem. I may need to, by doing this, by finding out where they are, I need to set my classroom priorities to be appropriate to their growth at whatever level it is. And if it is in emotional behavior regulation, then those are the expectations that I need to prioritize for those kids. So if I have to change my classroom to promote their growth, and I have to change what, I, what my priorities are to promote their growth, yes. But I, I, it may have been, it could have been more heavy handed, but I think there is some of that implied in this article. We both have spent time supervising the in-school suspension room. Mm -hmm. And in those room with those students, so we can say this is all well and good, you're having a heart-to-heart -heart with a college biology student, whatever. But I think the students yeah. who stand to benefit the most, who are uh, most engaged with the behavioral modification systems of our school, are the ones who most need to be heard and most need to think about what do they want and why are they here and where would they like to be and you really spent the time and the energy you're describing uh even with those students having those conversations students who you just met or students who you don't have in class what did that look like uh well if you're in iss conveniently you have a whole class period just to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation about the situation and uh a lot of times these students who are put in this situation feel so that it was done unjustly or it was done with absolutely no, like they had no input or consequence or behavioral, uh, they don't see the connection between what happened and why they are in that room. If they do not see that connection, then there is no incentive for them to take agency. They're, they have no agency or no perceived agency, so they have no reason to change their behaviors. So drawing the connection between the behavior and why they are there sometimes needs to be connected. Those dots are not connected for with the student. And that often 
involves perspective taking because how a teacher will look at the situation is likely going to be very, very different than how this particular student looks at the same situation. And students who don't spend time thinking about the perspectives of others aren't going to predict that difference in perception. We have a new BD teacher in my school, behavior disorder teacher, and she sent an article to many of the teachers uh, from MindShift, which is an education podcast hosted by NPR, uh, 20 tips to help de-escalate interactions with anxious or defiant students. Uh, you can find this on that podcast, uh, a website, the MindShift website. And uh, unlike the other article, which was more philosophically oriented, this one has very particular actions that an individual can take when students uh, are showing these signs of either stress leading to problematic behaviors or uh, defiance. And the heart of these is that what the students need to develop first is self-awareness. Because when we get to this neurological stage where we've got the adrenaline, our ability to make decisions about our actions plummets. But when the nervousness is building and we're in a precursor cortisol state, we can make choices about our behavior. And if we can begin to feel ourselves in that state, then we can make choices to prevent being out of control. And so that article, uh, Mind Shift, 20 Tips to Help De-Escalate Interactions with Anxious or Defiant Students. If this is something in your classroom that you are uh, working with, I recommend that read. Mm -hmm. Thanks, uh, Blevins. Yeah. Uh, and my recommendation, so if we've got a, a peer-reviewed piece that's going to come along and maybe inform some of this discussion of developing soft skills, developing transferable skills in our students, uh, there's another one, Work Factors Influencing the Transfer Stages of Soft Skills Training, a Literature Review. And what I took away from this that I thought was most valuable was that explicit training in particular soft skills is not nearly as important as job-related factors like workload, job relevance, and autonomy. If we foster an environment where students can think about why they're doing the things that they're doing and what skills they might bring to bear on something, they are going to develop more transferable job skills than if we just tell them about job skills. If we talk about, here's how you predict the barriers you will encounter to being successful in various situations in the future, and here are the goals you might set for your own development to be able to overcome those barriers, that's how we get over them in the future. It's not just telling them, here are some things you should do, is here are the barriers you will encounter. Now let me, let me give you the autonomy to develop those skills in a way that you can then recognize commonalities in future situations so that you can overcome the barriers you will encounter in the future. I am blown away. I am blown away. Uh, because even though the literal term soft skills was in this article, I read this entirely from a PD perspective. I read it entirely as, hey, uh, how do we make professional development for teachers more effective? Here's an article about uh, work environments trying to teach soft skills in PD. And for me, there's this one quote which was just so resonant, I can't not read it. If a trainee is not allowed to try new behaviors, make errors, and learn from them, as in making an error will lead to punishment, the chance that trainees will start using the new behavior is small. In general, 
If old behaviors are more rewarding than new behaviors, nothing will change. That, that passage is applicable to everything we do. If you're teaching a student self-regulatory processes, then you need to expect them to try and fail in the self-regulatory process. Well, I think that's something where we can say giving them these new situations to explore, these uh, ways to consider new approaches to past problems. I think of that reflective practice and that opportunity to think about what would I do if I was in this setting is a really powerful tool for the students who have not developed those metacognitive processes to explore what that looks like in a safe space. Know your students. First piece of mail comes from a listener in Singapore, and he mentioned that he thought it was kind of hilarious that we said something like, direct instruction does not work in our previous last month's episode, but then immediately acknowledged that uh, Dr. Zhao's argument uh, that direct instruction can work in some settings that it has some benefits. He thought that seemed to be a little bit uh, self-contradictory. It goes. I don't think it's contradictory. It goes back to our uh, philosophy of technology that has been consistent from the early, early we episodes of the show. Use the right tool for the right job. It is rare that direct instruction is going to be the right tool for the right job. I mean, the, I'm sorry. It is rare that direct instruction is going to be the right tool, but rarely is not never. Yeah. And I actually interpret that a little differently. I think that that is a critique of uh, my own imprecision in my use of language. Because I what I actually meant in that setting was that direct instruction does not work really means direct instruction is not the best available tool to achieve the goals that I find to be the most valuable. But that is not the same thing as saying direct instruction doesn't have benefits. There are some things direct instruction can do. Whether or not it does them well or whether or not those things are valuable is sort of an implicit discussion that I sort of overlooked and didn't come through in my in my comments and especially in my editing. So what I really meant was direct instruction is not the best way to achieve the things that I think are most valuable in the classroom. But Dr. Zhao is correct that direct instruction can achieve some things. So thanks. Thanks for uh, pointing out a spot where I could be more articulate. We like being nitpicky, so we appreciate you being on our team. And uh, our next user submitted morsel, uh, what I found to be quite uh, compelling. And I suppose uh, the rest of the world, or at least some of the world does too, by uh, from what I'm hearing. Yeah, so this is, a, this is a news article that's making the rounds on social media right now. By the time this article, this episode comes out, that may be old news. But there's a story going around about a teacher who has been fired, and the teacher claims that she has been fired because she refused to not give a zero for incomplete work. We're gonna link a we're gonna link the local news story about this. But what has been viral is that she wrote a note to her students on the whiteboard um, before she left class, and then students took a photo of that message, and that has been blowing up all over social media. So a listener wrote to us and asked uh, whether or not this related to our recent discussion in episode zero sixteen uh, about having a no zero grading policy. Well, yes, part of the discussion is about a no zero grading policy. But this is a little more complicated than than a teacher wasn't doing a no zero grading policy and so they were fired. I found a lot 
of problems with the situation on a whole. Now, I will have to admit that uh, I'm basing this off of a three-minute news report, and I don't live there, and I'm not in that district, and I don't teach at that school, and I don't know this person. So there's going to be a lot of assumptions in, in, in my critique, but I'm going to try to take things at face value. Mm-hmm. One, the district is wrong. One of the issues uh, that I found in this was that the district reported that there was no policy regarding zeros in that district. And then the problem is that there is a school handbook that reports there is a policy regarding zeros. So now we have an issue of either policy discrepancy or philosophy discrepancy in that district. Is the district saying our schools have the autonomy to establish their own grading practices, which is great. That I think that would be a great policy for the district, but that's not what was said. The policy at the district was said that there is no policy. And so now there's a conflict there. I find it incredibly unlikely that the district fired this person because of their grading practice. That's actually on my list of things to say, Good. too. Yeah. Because I, I think all of this discussion presupposes a thing that is really, really unlikely. Yeah. You don't get fired after a month of work just because you insist on giving a zero. I just I don't think that happens. Yeah. So then we get to the administrator level. And I have here the, administ- the school administrators are probably wrong, too, under the assumption that she was fired over this zero policy. Which, as you just stated, and I agree with you, that is probably not the whole story. If so, though, if she was fired over the zero policy, this was a mistake because that principle is harshly removing teacher autonomy. And as we just read in our last article, if you want to develop your staff, you need to have them be able to be responsible for their choices in the classroom. I just got to believe there's more to this story. Yeah. Grades must have meaning. And so the culture of changing how grading is done must be led on a philosophical level. But you can't dictate people's philosophies. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. You have to attract them to different philosophies. And so the administration failed to reach this teacher at a philosophical level, assuming that they believe strongly in the 50%. And so if that's the case they need to let that teacher have autonomy so that the teacher is feeling that they're in an environment that is safe enough for them to try new things. Mm -hmm. But it was clearly not that way for this teacher. Now, again, the provisional status of the teacher made it so that there may be more to this story than is being presented. And so I, if we take it at face value, the administration made some mistakes, but it's possible, and in fact, I think likely, that there's more to it than what we're seeing. We're in this together. I liked the beer. <laughs> uh, uh, it is very rare that I'm about to say what I'm about to say. But it is a little past my preference on the dark side, bitter side of things. Wow. Yeah. Um, I had, It reminds me of the uh, old Rasputin uh, Russian Imperial Stout, mm-hmm. uh, which is just like drinking sod. Like it is just dirt and grass in, in a glass. Uh, this isn't quite that, but it reminded me of that. And so like I could sweeten this up a little bit. Like I would be okay if it was slightly less bitter or slightly more sweet. It went, it was, it, it is, it is what it says. It is iron. Joe, it's like I can taste the iron in it. I can mm-hmm. taste it. I can taste the metal shavings 
in this beer. I think that's what I like about it, actually, uh-huh. is um, it's dark enough that it's starting to hit some of the notes that I like in my coffee. And so I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah, I great. This It's, you know, it's the middle of the afternoon, but I still like this bitter, stout, rough flavor. And like, yeah, that's what I'm digging. And what do I do usually with my coffee, Ralph? <laughs> Dump a whole garden of milk in it? Yeah, exactly. So I think we agree with this. Yeah. We, we, we are analyzing this. Yeah. Uh, Consistently. So if you drink your coffee black, you should drink this beer. Absolutely. Because uh, I'm also, I'm a little, I'm, I'm reasonably loopy from it, so it's stiff enough, which I think is surprising because it's, uh, ABV is not as high as I was expecting. Yeah, it's only 8%. But, you know, for most people on Earth, only is not the word you would use with 8%. Fair enough. It's not straight scotch whiskey. Right. <laughs> it's not the 11%. Of uh, so, yeah, I like it, but you got to be sure you like stouts if you're going to drink this. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. Season two is up and running. So if you want to get a look at any of the references we've made or you want to see any of the additional sources that we have sort of mentioned offhand, go to twopintplc.com. That's where we put every reference, every link, every piece of paper so you can stay current on what we're talking about and what we referenced during this episode. Discuss research. And struggle well.